0: You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, Many Voices, Community Radio.
1: This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is writer and astrologer Alice sparkly Cat. Born in Zhengzhou, China, Alice moved to Iowa when they were five years old. When they got into astrology in 2014, it was after they had spent 12 years living in predominantly white spaces and interacting with predominantly white institutions. Alice uses astrology to rechart a history of the subconscious, redefine the body and the world, and reimagine history as collective memory. Their astrological work has inhabited MoMA, Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the Brooklyn Museum. And they are the author of Postcolonial Astrology, which is the topic of our conversation today. Alice Sparklycat, welcome to Story Behind the Story.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to meet you. Thanks for
1: hanging out. <laughs> yeah, I think this will be a lot of fun. I wanted to start by asking you to describe what astrology is to you. What do you see as the purpose of astrology or the purposes of astrology and how do you use it in your own life? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a language,
2: so you can do a lot with it. I mean, you can um, like narrate your life experiences with it. You can listen to other people with it. I mean, you can have a lot of fun with it, too. Um, Yeah, but it's a language, so you can kind of like do what you like with it.
0: Hmm.
1: This book is largely about the historical context in which the symbols of Western astrology, which kind of make up a lot of that language, came to prominence, and the way that those symbols and the practice of astrology in the West has been used to bolster racist, sexist, and capitalist infrastructure. What does that context do to your understanding of astrology, and how does it inform your practice?
2: Yeah, because I think it's a question of like how languages are shaped, uh, like what they're built to talk about. So we can talk about a lot of things using Western astrology, like we can talk a lot about histories of pain, things like that. Uh, And there's some things that it really just like can't talk about too. Uh, so like, yeah, I wanted to just kind of make the book because I wanted to really cut away at this idea that Western astrology is universal because um, mm. it's
1: not, it, you know,
2: it's, yeah, it's a specific language. It can be used to talk about certain
1: things. When you think about it as a language, do you think about that primarily in terms of the symbols or is there, is there more to it? Like, tell me a little bit about what you mean when you call it a language.
2: Yeah, what I mean by calling it language is like, I mean, it's about the symbols and things like that, too. But I think that like the purpose of language is to turn reality into fiction because uh, mm. we don't live in reality. We live in ideologies. And so language is something that can make us a little bit more aware of that. So that's what I mean when I say that astrology is a language, like, you know, it's not a science, it's not really a religion. Um, it's a language because it's uh, like, I mean, it's used to talk about things.
1: I really love what you said about um, we don't live in reality, we live in ideologies, because I think that's something that gets lost so easily in, in our conversations in the West, right? Like we tend to try to focus on finding things that are objective somehow,
2: Yeah, and then we can't find them.
1: No, they don't exist. (laughs) But I think it's especially interesting right now because I think we do, we've seen so much over the course of the pandemic, the way that like ideologies can affect people and can impact their realities as well. So what do you see as the sort of conversation between, like, how does language mediate that conversation between the reality and the ideologies?
2: I think it really depends on how you practice it. Like uh personally because I do client work. Uh so right. like that's a big part of how I like see this happening. Talking to people about what they're experiencing, what they remember, processing a lot of memories with people uh through astrology. Uh there's also I mean horoscope writing, that's a whole art on its mm. own, it's very different than client work. So what you're doing is you're like kind of talking about the present or current events. Um and also this anticipation of the near future. But different forms, yeah. I mean, I've seen like uh, fiction writers use astrology in their work. Musicians use astrology.
1: Yeah, I, I'm very interested in that relationship between astrology and other types of storytelling. Because there are a lot of fiction writers, for example, who talk about discovering things about themselves or processing the events of their lives through fiction often without really being aware that that's what they're doing until after the fact when they sort of come to analyze what they've written. Yeah. As an astrologer, like you said, you're you're often practicing astrology on and with other people. Is there a similar experience of discovery in that practice of like self-discovery as well as client discovery?
2: Totally, yeah. Because now I have a column like in my client notes section of just like what I learned from each client too. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, not necessarily about them, but just about like things that they're teaching about life, things like that.
1: Can you share an example of that?
2: Mm, Yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of this stuff, like I I tell clients, like, you know, nothing we talk about here leaves the session. Um, But just in terms of like my own impressions of some of the work, like I had a client uh, teach me the difference between like uh, being listened to and being understood the other day. Um, mm-hmm. yeah I had a client teach me that like politics is really about ethics ones, I think a couple weeks ago uh, yeah those are just like the things that are sticking to
1: me but a lot of things yeah. some of those insights that come out of it
2: mm-hmm.
1: what was it like for you learning about the origin of a lot of these astrological symbols of a lot of the language that is used in astrology when you learned about it for the first time
2: Yeah, I mean, I had some things that were pretty surprising to me because, uh, I mean, I knew that astrology had been practiced a lot by right wing figures, like, uh, yeah, Reagan, for example, JP Morgan, things like that. But there's this whole like kind of assumption about astrology sometimes that it's based on observable things, Hmm. uh. And then like in my mind i was assuming that there would be astrologers like kind of looking at people's lives oh venus like in the eighth house it shows up this way let me write that down things like that but that's not what i found and what i found was that when taught me writes about astrology uh, he's talking about universal particularities and then or universal astrology and then particular mm-hmm. astrologies um, and then the particular astrology that he's talking about, he's looking at like differences in temperament between cultures and geographies. Uh, so he's actually looking at race uh, or what we would call race now. So then, like a lot of astrology, like a lot of the quote unquote observable differences, like, you know, they are very subjective and they're actually about uh, race. Hmm.
1: I think it's so interesting. Realizing how much of a relationship there is between astrology, historically, between astrology and right-wing ideologies, it's so interesting to me that it is largely seen as sort of like a a hippie outcropping or a left-wing kind of thing. What do you make of that? There's many different types.
2: Uh, So there's, for example, like people who are talking about like certain astrological techniques or even people who are doing client work are very different than people who are practicing horoscope writing like any different almost like, like subcultures within astrology um so for example like horoscope writers like they tend to not be men because it originated in some of that zine culture that was happening in the 80s that's what i've heard Um, So it's almost like there's a lot of different subcultures that are all using astrology, but it, um, yeah, and then there's points where, like, people collide, but it's not, like, this cohesive thing, too.
1: Yeah. You had an essay that you put out recently on, I think it was called, Why Straight Men Don't Like Astrology. First of all, can you, like, to sort of recap that basic argument and then talk about how that how you reconcile that and how the, what the differences are between the astrology that straight men don't like and the astrology that gets co-opted by right-wing figures like Reagan yeah
2: because straight men do like astrology (laughs) Um, like if you go to some of the conferences it's mostly straight men actually oh really that's fascinating (laughs) but then you go online and then you see these memes like astrology gf stock market bf um and then like you're also kind of seeing like someone wrote the other day it was like oh e-girls are ruining astrology like things like that so like Like, straight men have a really large uh, institutional presence in astrology. There's a real difference of what's being talked about because a lot of the stuff that's seen as, like, trivial or, like, um, unimportant uh, types of astrology tends to be about relationships. It tends to be about emotions. Like, a lot of the astrology that is practiced by men, like, it does tend to be, like, more about... kind of ancient Rome and yeah, just kind of like the history and stuff. It's it's all important. Um, Yeah, it's just, it looks very different.
1: Yeah. Well, so astrology is often derided as frivolity or pseudoscience. But one Mm -hmm. of the things I I love in this book is how seriously you take it. At the same time, taking something seriously doesn't mean there's no room for play or for fun. So what do you see as the role of, of play and of fun in the practice of astrology?
2: yeah yeah I think that's like an assumption people make about astrologers or people who are into astrology Like, kind of see us as these like Um, like very serious people who are like serious about a silly thing Hmm. but actually like astrology is really serious but then people who are into astrology are actually really silly Um, (laughs) yeah so I mean I think that having fun with a language can really change it Uh, so I feel like that's what's really exciting about astrology being practiced today Um, and it's like having fun but it's also a about doing grief work with people Mm -hmm. it's also about um yeah just like really having conversations with people because processing emotions like it's not always fun but like play is like a pretty crucial element of it too
1: what's what are some ways that you have included play in your own personal practice of astrology
2: i think sometimes with just like having people imagine what certain planets like might be telling all the planets in their chart like uh it, it's pretty fun yeah like making jokes sometimes it can be pretty fun
1: yeah and of course there's a lot of one of the ways that I think I see astrology consumed online is is through memes and mood boards and mm-hmm. um, a lot of these sort of structures that kind of come out of fandom and, and I know we're going to talk about fandom a little bit later what do you see as the role of the those things in modern astrology, or I don't know if modern astrology is the right way to call it, but in the astrology that is kind of practiced a lot today.
2: Yeah, I think it's just about having a shared language. Um and with some of the memes, like people kind of like tag their friends um just kind of like or send it to a friend so it's a way to kind of communicate actually um same with fandom it's it's a shared language Uh, it brings people together uh with the mood boards i think it's like i mean it's a lot about just kind of like self-expression also um i got really addicted to the mood boards this last (laughs) month there's like a ton but then I saw it today and I'm like, oh man, like Taco Bell made some mood boards. And oh no. <laughs> yeah, it was like, well, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about that.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that's a problem that we see a lot with 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 these subcultures that end up getting a lot of exposure through mm-hmm. social media or I mean primarily through social media is
0: mm-hmm. that it's
1: so easy then for corporations who are also on social media to co-opt that and and to sort of use it for their own purposes. And I think that really takes a lot away from, from the practice. It's not that we can't sort of engage with these brands as well. But the pur- if the purpose is self-understanding, mm-hmm. what does it mean for a brand to co-opt self-understanding?
0: Yeah, I'm not
2: too worried about it. And the reason is, I, like, I mean, I believe in people Mm -hmm. Um, because a brand can sit there and try to like, you know, do something with this language, uh, but people are going to do what they want with the language. Uh, So like fandom is a good example because a lot of the images, characters, uh, verses that we get in fandom, like, I mean, they start with the corporation, but then people are kind of like taking the materials and creating something new out of them. Uh, So yeah, I really believe in people just being able to respond to, uh, just kind of like corporate actions. Um, yeah, I'm not feeling too like, oh man, like corporations, they're going to take over people. Um, cause I don't think that's possible actually. I think corporations can pretend to, but
1: mm. I think that people are going to do what they want. I, I like that. Uh, corporations can try to take us over, but we do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because like you know, corporations
2: they co opt like queer messages and stuff oh, yeah. like that. But I mean, queer people are still
1: around. It's
2: you know, yeah, <laughs> <we're>,
1: like <laughs> we we are here and queer. It's true. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about what it was like for you to learn the origins of these astrological symbols the first time when you were mm-hmm. researching this book. Did you know these stories already, or were there things that sort of jumped out at you and changed your perspective?
2: Yeah, there were definitely surprising things like the thing I was telling you about how I was like, oh, my God, like astrology is not about like observable differences in individuals. That was shocking to me. It's about, um, quote unquote, observable differences, really assumptions about Mm -hmm. geography and culture things like that. So the book it came actually out of this zine I made called Money Magic that was about an etymology of the moon and Saturn. Oh, cool. So it was about paralleling paralleling like those two symbols uh, together. Um, because they're often read together since Saturn's cycle is 28 years and then the moon cycle is 27 days. Um, so you know, they um they kind of collide in a person's chart. And then I was finding some stuff about stuff, uh, out about the moon and Saturn, um, about just what the relationship between land and money could be, because uh, the moon is related to commerce. It's related to money, while Saturn is related to citizenship and land. Um, and then, uh, so when I was bringing the sun into that conversation, the sun is gold. Um, like I had an idea of what I wanted to talk about Um and then I just kind of went from there, and stuff changed because we're comparing th- comparing three symbols now. Um, with Venus and Mars, I actually thought that I would be talking about sexuality a lot more, but it didn't end up being the case uh, because I made the assumption that gender is like made for reinforcing sexuality. Hmm. Uh, but you know, I found out through the research that that wasn't the case. Like, gender is. Uh, technology that's created for war it's made to talk about war um, and it's made to regulate uh, social relations during war um, yeah. so it's not really about sexuality so then I cut all that stuff out and these sections where I was talking about sexuality but all that got cut out
1: I found that section on Venus and Mars really fascinating and and especially the sort of discussion of different romantic tropes and in that we see in storytelling mm-hmm. a lot like the sort of Romeo and Juliet trope. And um, there were some others you discussed, but that's the one that's like (laughs) hitting in my brain right now. And how they really are stories about violence. So you talk about um, Twilight and uh, Fifty Shades of Grey at some length and the way that, right, like these are, Set, right in, in Twilight, it is really set out as a love story, but all of the sort of things that are about protecting love are really things that are about are are really sort of ways of justifying violence.
2: Yeah, protecting the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many parallels,
1: and it is right. Like it, it does follow along a lot of those tropes. Right, like the the star-crossed mm-hmm. lovers and <laughs> uh, yeah. whatever yeah. else. The overprotection. So when you're talking about these, I mean, at earlier points, you're talking about the sort of mythological origins for some of these stories. You talk about um, the story of Inanna going down to the underworld and Mm -hmm. um, a sort of—it's not parallel, it's sort of an opposing version of the story— is this of Mer- when you're talking about Mercury is that when you were talking about the sort of opposition of, of sort of Mercury going down to the underworld and how those are different
2: oh yeah yeah because like with Mercury and Venus they're inferior planets mm-hmm. uh, which just means that you know they're not like quality inferior <laughs> they're just closer <laughs> to the sun um, so then we see them in the retrograde cycle like uh, a couple times a year for Mercury every two years for Venus where they just go retrograde Right. Um, so that has to do with like going Going to the underworld um for Inanna for um for Mercury Mercury is allowed to go to the underworld like whenever he wants. So you know, he retrogrades want Yeah.
1: Join KSQD Sunday evening at five and Tuesday morning at six for sustainability now. As host Ronnie Lipschitz welcomes physicist Robert staton He's the author of Solar Dividends, How Solar Energy Can Generate a Basic Income for Everyone on Earth. They'll so discuss the math science, economics, and politics of his proposal, and whether his utopian vision can be made real by the end of the 21st century. That's Sunday from 5 to 6 p.m. and Tuesday from 6 to 7 a.m. here on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is astrologer Alice sparkly Catt, whose recent book, Postcolonial Astrology, charts the politicized history of Western astrological symbols and offers an approach to astrological work that explicitly centers queer and POC practitioners. When you are taking this astrological language that is built on these things and you're transforming them, and particularly, let's, let's talk maybe a little bit about those sort of love and war stories, because I think they're, they're very interesting. Mm-hmm. How do you go about transforming them?
2: Oh, you mean like, uh, like in my practice? Yeah, yes,
1: in your practice. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, to use them to talk about things, um, because like you know, people want to talk about gender Mm. a lot of the time and feel like a need to. Um, So, I mean, it looks so different for each person, because I can talk to someone who's like maybe transitioning. It's like, hey, I'm really processing what gender means to me. Um, Maybe I'm talking to someone who's like raised as certain gender like family dynamics enforce that gender um like kind of dichotomy and they're trying to process it so i yeah it really depends for each person for myself personally because um yeah i feel like i have a relationship to these things like outside of how i work with other people too Mm -hmm. uh it's like i i mean it helps for me to fictionalize them because then i'm able to just kind of play with it i tell stories i mean i write a lot of love stories actually and then i feel like anytime i'm writing stories i'm playing with ideas of gender um yeah
1: yeah well and i think you were raising this before that you sort of had this assumption that gender was about sexuality or was there to bolster particular ideas of sexuality but that it is instead this sort of technology and Mm -hmm. i think in the context of of Thinking about gender and gender assignment, right? Like we can really see the relationship between that that view of gender as a technology and the sort of violence um, that you sort of that you see when you are looking at um, at Mars, right? Like you can really see the way that assigning people a particular gender or setting them into these these boxes can be a kind of violence
2: yeah 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 it can be yeah yeah so then like you can use it to like kind of describe yourself you can use it to play with it um yeah I feel like uh, a lot of times like I feel like that's why astrology is so queer is actually being queer people are like so good at like creating meaning while destroying it at the same time yeah kind of taking it apart
1: yeah you've got that cycle well, I think now is probably a good time to have you do a little bit of a reading. Can I ask you to set it up for us first? Just kind of describe what we're going to hear.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, this is just the last couple of paragraphs from the intro of the book. Oh, cool. Um, the truth is the thing that is astrology is not what offers healing to astrology fans. The history of astrology developed out of white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy. The ways that we see Venus and Mars and gender, the ways that Jupiter and the sun relationship really have been... Define have some power rather than working against it. Astrology, as we have inherited it, does not offer us authentic identity. Astrology offers us Roman identity, Roman belonging, and Roman humanity. This is why we must continually work to destroy astrology as we practice it, because we look for identity from it. The reason why astrology as a subculture creates beautiful community and spiritual validation is not because there is anything special about such uncult occult language or because it has the ability to glimpse into one's being in a way that's different from other identity languages. It's because astrology's practitioners and fans have made it our own. It works not because there's anything magical about the language itself, but because the act of not believing readily, of believing where belief has been earned, of listening waywardly, and of owning the magic of illusion, making collectively, is magic. Astrology is not magic. The community that recreates it in the contemporary era is. As a writer, I come from the fan world, which is a controversial storytelling world because the writers tend to be voices who neither get published nor learn the tropes that can earn a writer institutional validation. Fanfiction fiction writers are often naive writers because we're untrained. It's not really industry because there's no money in writing fan fiction because the work itself exists within a legal gray zone. We, tend, we write with characters who will never belong to us. However, fanfiction continues to stick around, despite all those who say it's too embarrassing and the young feminists to you grow out of it. People like fanfiction because it's a space where they can be heard because it's a community that contests the authority of authorship. The mass media that the fandom world digests, like the Roman one that the astrological community digests, is not a neutral one. It's a world overpopulated by white men where women never see respect to one another where the binary between homosexuality and heterosexuality makes it seem as though gay people are an entirely separate natural species where people of color do not exist at all unless they're characterized in supporting or stereotypical ways. This world sort of images is genealogically related to white supremacist ideologies. Cartoons were originally based on white men uh, satirizing Blackness in early American cinema developed from the minstrel tradition. Like astrologers who are often not genealogically related to the Romans, but seek to transcend cultural frameworks that are called too naive and too specific to be studied outside of anthropology. Fan fiction writers are often not white men, but they often reproduce images of white men in order to tell stories about themselves. Like astrologers do with their archetypes, fanfiction writers often gender bend or race bend their characters and sometimes make them into inhuman creations or animal hybrids. Like astrologers, fanfiction writers often find their source material less than satisfactory, and the available tools used to speculate new realities away from colonized imagination is disappointing. However, fan fiction writers stay in fandom for the same reasons that astrologers stay staying in astrology. Because it feels good to speak to one another, to make some jokes, because fellow fans and astrologers work to see us when we write stories or horoscope interpretations, because we belong in subculture, even when we don't belong in culture. What saves astrology from itself today is that it works like the fandom world. It's a community-created subculture that takes what has been mass-produced and digests it. Rather than a consumer-oriented cultural movement, which tends to spike in interest when there are big blockbuster releases from a centralized creative power and ebb after the hype has died down, fandoms that are community-created tend to stay stagnant in terms of capturing interest. After a certain magical point, fandoms are no longer dependent on the canon and function quite well on their own. Neither growing or dimensions in size. The Sailor Moon Phantom is a good example of this. If you want to look up the numbers on this topic, uh, Tumblr user destination toast. Us, it means that we're are not out to evangelize or to grow as the papists tell us that we should be if we we're to stay viable. We're out here sharing ideas, healing each other, inspiring each other on a daily, not in cumulative, not scale. There's no central corporation that pumps out astrology books that all of us then follow. Doing astrology simply means that we're listening to one another. It means that we're listened to.
1: Yeah, I really like that. And it resonates a lot with my experience. I came to astrology also through fandom um, somewhat obliquely. Uh, I co hosted a sort of a podcast that dealt with the magicians fandom, and my co host, who I met through through Tumblr, through the fandom, um, has been very into astrology for a long time. And for me, one of the huge uses of astrology in my life has been to have those connections with with Mm -hmm. her and with some other fans who are sort of inhabiting that same space. And just as a, I mean, you said language, but communication tool, which is kind of what a language is, right? As a way to... To validate what we see in ourselves and in each other, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your fandom experience and and how that how that I don't know if it is linear or in the transition to astrology or if there's just a conversation between them, but I would love to hear you talk about that
2: yeah yeah I mean I'm a Yu-Gi-Oh fan like uh yeah I mean I dilly-dally other fandoms too but like I'm a Yu-Gi-Oh fan like first and foremost so it's not a really large fandom like I mean I feel like there's maybe six other Yu-Gi-Oh fans that are
1: still active out there (laughs) probably a few more but (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) but yeah it's fun I mean you know it yeah like it started on fanfiction.net so a lot of the fanfiction now is on archive of our own it's not really big on an archive of our own because it's a kind of older fandom right uh yeah it's a little bit adjacent to the naruto fandom but not really too. yeah and i mean i got into bts recently too in the last couple of years so i'm not like a old army or anything but I I write BTS fan fiction also. I name my cat Yoongi.
1: Um, It's so interesting to me, the phenomena of writing fan fiction about real people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But I think you actually, you have a section in the book where you talk about K-pop in particular and about um, the sort of ways that it is, that um, K-pop as an industry is constructed in the way that the sort of icons are constructed. Can, Can you maybe speak to that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, so like, I know that, like, you know, K pop idols, like, you know, they're quote unquote real people, but when we're writing fan fiction about them, we're not treating them like real people. Like, they're characters too. They have a persona that they're crafting. A lot of times it changes from era to era. Uh, so, like, they're kind of providing us with, like, a fictionalized experience. Like I was a DBSK fan also when I was a teenager. That's an older K-pop mm. group, and they would like one of their marketing strategies would was like the members would write fan fiction about themselves oh, and I post love it. it up there. <laughs> Yeah, so they're they're okay with it. Yeah, I don't feel I know that it, like sometimes it can feel creepy to write fan fiction about real people, but I don't feel so creepy about it with K-pop because I know it's a big part of just like the culture.
1: Yeah, well, and to some extent, I mean, this is kind of what we're talking about, bringing bringing it back to the astrological work, that uh, the way that many people practice astrology is sort of writing fan fiction about themselves and the people in their lives.
2: I mean, I was reflecting on this. I feel like there's kind of a cultural difference in general where, like, a lot of times, like, we expect American celebrities to kind of, like, function from this place of authenticity of, like, Oh I like you know if I'm queer I'm gonna come out or something like that but I think it's a little bit different in Asian uh pop cultures where it's like hey like you know your identity as a celebrity it's a social agreement between your fans and you so there isn't this expectation you're like you're going to reveal all about yourself or
3: anything mm. like that.
1: I really liked your discussions about authenticity, both um, sort of early in the in the book and later. And particularly um, in that early section, I think it was in the sun, but it might have been in Saturn. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Um, of the way, yeah, it was in the sun. Of the way that like authenticity functions and, and what it means when you're sort of constantly watched. Was in this sort of discussion of the sun as the eye and the sort of panopticon.
2: Oh, yeah. It means something really different in a surveillance culture, actually. Like, I was reading this book. I was reading two books concurrently recently. One is called The Perfect Police State, Hmm. and the other one is called The Circle by David Eggers. Uh, And then, yeah, so The Circle is, like, kind of about this person who's, like, kind of forced to be hyper-visible and then also surveilled. And The Perfect Police State is about surveillance technologies in China, being used against the Uyghurs, but mm. uh, and then so it was kind of yeah, it was like oh whoa, like what is authenticity even like? You know, the push for authenticity, it's like it's so much about just like being like uh, like surveilled.
1: Yeah, and I think so much about this in in thinking about like a lot of fan culture in the U.S. particularly that so much of it does seem to be about um, an expectation that. Uh, you'll have access to and be able to see into parts of the lives of of people, of artists, and people who are and people who are celebrities and other in other aspects. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I was struck by this line in the passage that you read: astrology works not because there's anything magical about the language itself, but because the act of not believing readily or. Be- of believing where belief has been earned, of listening waywardly, and of owning the magic illusion make, uh, magic of illusion making collectively is magic. Astrology is not magic. The community that recreates it in the contemporary era is. When you're doing a reading for a friend or a client, or you're working on your own astrological stories, how do you cultivate that magic? How do you listen?
2: I think by just uh, thinking about what am I trying to say? using this language what are we like trying to uh do with it because like just like you know reproducing a language like it doesn't really do anything Mm -hmm. like you're actually like trying to say something that uh so that's something i actually want to work with people on i'm gonna start a class uh called writing astrology Uh, And then it's going to be about, like, hey, like, you know, how do we use this language to really describe things, to do something uh, really substantial with it? Because that's a common issue with astrology writing. Uh, And this is, I mean, you know, this is just kind of like a detail, but a lot of the older astrological writing that you find, I mean, this is like from Valens, things like that, from ancient Rome, is that it's usually a list of keywords, so then what tends to happen when people write about astrology is that that structure gets reproduced where it's like, Hey, I'm listing like a list of keywords related to the planet or the sign or something. Um, but like, like in these anthologies, they're not trying to say anything with astrology. Like it's just the list of keywords. So right. then like, you, you know, like we can do something a little bit more creative with it.
1: What do you hope for when you're getting a reading from another astrologer? And what part do you see yourself playing in the process of, Um, as the person being read?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And then I've gotten so many readings from so many different people. Uh, And then sometimes I'll go in with kind of like, hey, this is what I want to talk about. Um, But sometimes I'm um, not. Sometimes I'm just really interested in what this astrologer is doing. So I got a reading from Giselle Castano or I was like, hey, I want to talk about how work is impacting my life right now Mm -hmm. with you. Um, I got a reading from Sam Reynolds and like, I was really interested in talking about my solar return, my birthday that year with him. I got a reading from Oscar Moises Diaz and like, I mean, I was interested in Oscar's technique of using star while mm. uh, looking at fixed stars. Uh, and then what happened was like, we found some really cool like patterns with between like me and my lineage mm. with the stars because, um, like, stars are, they're so localized, actually. They really affect, like, the local place. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got a, a reading with Alicia. I don't know her last name, actually. But, where I was, like, you know, I wanted to process think, some grief uh, in that reading. Um, yeah, so, I mean, di- yeah, different different astrologers with different techniques. But also just kind of, like, um, yeah, different, like, experiences and different things, too.
1: And. Do you feel like, I would assume that you, if, if, if it's a good reading, you would feel like you learned something about yourself. Do you feel like there, like, what is, what is the sort of thing that you're looking for when you go, like, if you're going to different astrologers, is it as simple as just different perspectives?
2: I think different perspectives, like different, yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, different kinds of information, different expertise, because uh, there's many forms of astrology actually so you might go to an astrologer who's for example like a medical practitioner Mm. who if you're like yeah trying to get pregnant or something like that uh you might go to an astrologer who uh, does like relocation if you're trying to maybe look at your immigration history or Mm. even like think about where you want to move um, so it's really like what you want to get out of it, uh, and there's no one different type of astrology. There's so many people practicing like different things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah, do your research if you ever get a reading. <laughs> like, look at you know what look at what people yeah. are um, like, what their practice is about because it it's so day and
1: night. Are there particular approaches to astrology, particular astrologies that have really shaped or transformed the way that you think? about your own practice yeah
2: yeah because i'm chinese too like uh part of how like i'm processing my grief around my grandfather passing is like he left me a lot of books about chinese cosmology Mm. uh and then you know like for example like the only way i know my birth time even is because my aunt like she delivered me and she gave me this like kind of small coin with a uh like monkey on it Uh, so i learned like I mean, the way I learned how to tell time too was through learning the Chinese zodiac. Like you have to memorize it when you're a toddler in China. That's the first astrology I learned, actually. And then uh, I feel like there's just certain things that Chinese astrology like talks about that are like very different than what Western astrology talks about. for example, like, a lot of the language of Chinese astrology, it's actually geographical. Mm. Like, it's not – I mean, it's talking about time because, you know, space-time is, like, all one thing. But it's, like, it's mostly geographical. That's why we have, like, feng shui, like, um, kind of, like, it's locational. Uh, And then, uh, yeah, it's, like, it's good for talking about change, too, because it's, like, it assumes that change is always happening sometimes, like – Yeah, even with like yin, you know, there's like yin is always changing into yang, like things like that. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, there's definitely things like built in the syntax that encourage talking about different
1: things. Yeah. I really like the idea um, in the passage you read again of magic not as an inherent power, but as something that we create through collective imagination. And one thing that it made me think about. Um, is labor organizing and the way solidarity, which is this thing, honestly, that we have to cultivate and teach, right? I don't think solidarity comes naturally to most people. It gives transformative power to people who otherwise as individuals would have very little. How do you see astrology's collective power? and, And do you see it as playing a role in collective struggles? I think so, because it creates a lot of relationships.
2: Um, yeah, it's like, I mean, again, it seems really frivolous, but it's not so easy actually to make friends outside of like institutions mm-hmm. or work, like it's not so easy. Um, so it's actually like it's pretty impactful, even if it seems a little bit frivolous.
1: Yeah, I think that comment about how, how difficult it is to to make friendships outside of work in institutions I think people are feeling that more over the last year and a half as we've we've been sort of Mm -hmm. isolated in our own homes
2: oh totally yeah yeah
1: are there sort of patterns that you've seen in the things that your clients are coming to you with over the course of the pandemic
2: oh man Uh, yeah I don't think so I think there's as many pandemics as there are people Mm. because everyone's experiencing it in such a different way um because yeah people ask me like hey are there any like you know things you notice it's just so hard to say because some people are like my life stopped some people are like hey look my life sped up Mm. like I was going to work like you know nothing changed um yeah some people I mean some people experience you know the stop of like just this speeding up of capitalism Mm -hmm. a little bit as like a relief, um, mm. some people are like, you no, know, like my COVID is about death. Like, yeah, it's just it's very
1: very different. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, I certainly think that for me personally, right, it it kind of took a while to realize that what was happening underneath all of the sort of conversations about all the sort of corporate wellness conversations and mm-hmm. uh, sort of insistence on, on taking care of yourself that at that same time, we were actually making less space for it.
2: Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like even my house too, cause I live with five people uh, like all of us experienced the different yeah, coronavirus yeah.
1: Join KSQD every Wednesday morning for the award-winning program On Being, hosted by Krista Tippett. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Each week, On Being explores these questions with a new discovery about the immensity of our lives. On Being airs Wednesday at 9 a.m. here at KSquid 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is astrologer Alice sparkly Catt, whose recent book, Postcolonial Astrology, charts the politicized history of Western astrological symbols and offers an approach to astrological work that explicitly centers queer and POC practitioners. So one of the things you say in your conclusion, which is a part of what our discussion has been so far, is use Western astrology to only acknowledge the influence of the West and to talk about capital power and labor. Don't use it for your own stuff. Make some room for your stuff make up your own stuff. Talk to me about about what that means about how how to use western astrology to talk about capital power and labor and what kind of stuff people are making up.
2: Yeah, cuz western astrology is really good for talking about pain. Like the sun and moon, like that's your family. Like I mean, you're talking about family pain, but you're talking about uh, yeah, pain of relationships, pain Uh, citizenship is so useful for talking about pain because it's all these western symbols uh so we're having a lot of good conversations about like just how our pain is shaped uh on the day-to-day using western astrology um but then i'm not going to use it to talk about my ancestors like even my grandparents, like, they don't even know their birthdays in the Gregorian mm. calendars, so I would have to calculate, like, what um, their stuff is and everything like that. I'm not going to kind of, like, use it to talk about the whole world, but it, it's useful for talking about relationships to, like, what the West is, because it, it it exists as this thing.
1: Yeah, I like that idea of using it to talk about pain, and I think... That's one thing that I find really prevalent in a lot of the sort of meme culture around um, particularly like big three astrology is that so much of it is talking about pain, right? Like I think when a friend sends me a meme or when I send a friend a meme, it's often Mm -hmm. people talk about it as being kind of like digs against people, but I don't see it that way. What I think it is is sort Mm of... Pointing out a specific wound that somebody might have or the way that they might experience that wound.
2: Right. Because humor is about pain, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very much so.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Did it take you a while to to come to that point where you felt like you could make your own stuff up or was it something that was very natural to you?
2: yeah it took me a while to feel like that's like okay but I was always making stuff up because my mom's a Pisces who like makes a lot of stuff up (laughs) like yeah (laughs) like a lot of the facts I got from her about the world just turned out to be wrong I mean I guess it's part of um how I grew up also
1: I think that's really interesting given what you were saying earlier about how like so much of your approach to to astrology but I think interpreting here, but I think some of your approach to life is about fictionalizing things, right? Like fictionalizing yeah. the things that we see, right? Like there's a there's a real value in, in making stuff up, in creating those stories, mm-hmm. and in yeah. even transmitting them, especially if we can sort of... I think when you, we were talking earlier about that collective magic, a lot of it for me is about suspension of disbelief. You can mm-hmm. know that yeah. something isn't true and still find truth in it.
2: I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. I think you're totally right. Where it's like, like not only do you suspend disbelief, but you're also like engaging in this fiction, um, being aware that it's a fiction.
1: Right, and in engaging in that fiction with somebody else, you're providing some validation for whatever the underlying truth is for them.
2: Yeah, that's the storytelling. Yeah,
1: you end your book by by saying, among other things, that there's no one way to practice good astrology, but I'm curious what not so much like what a practice of good astrology is but like what conceptually good astrology is to you
2: yeah that's really hard for me to say because i don't know because i have my own biases and filters like of course uh yeah. I mean, a lot of what I do with people, again, is like memory processing. Like we're looking at people's past a lot. Like I know that Kira from Astrology actually does more like future projecting, like future imagining with people. Um, I was like, whoa, that's really cool. Because like, I mean, I, I feel like I don't have like the same mindset to do that with people. Uh, so I, I don't know. I feel like there is no one way, no way to practice good astrology. Like, I mean, I think making connection with people, like, I feel like it can be a little bit bad if you're just like an astrologer, like talking, if you're reading paragraphs of like your ideas about the science or something, um, but you're not having that connection. If you're not
1: also learning, yeah. I, it's one of those chapters near the end or, or a subsection where you talk about, uh, it's it's called something like, um the unimaginable world. And I think hearing you talk about that sort of focus on or the astrologer who who does that more sort of future projection with people at future imagining, I think I hadn't really like made that connection before between what that is, which is like finding a way to imagine imagine what a future could could be, not just like what it is, but what it could be and potentially outside of a lot of these really restricting structures that we have now. So what would it look like? What would your future or my future look like Mm -hmm. if we didn't have capitalism, if we didn't have, you know, if we didn't have racism and homophobia, what could those futures look like? I love the idea of astrology as a way to get there.
2: Yeah, that is a really powerful, uh, like powerful way of doing astrology. Yeah. I'm not good at it. Like people will say like, Hey, can we talk about the future? I'll be like, okay. And then like, you know, like I'm, I I just, I don't have like the same um, tools for some reason, about talking about the future as the past, but yeah,
1: it's cool. Yeah. So this is the part where I ask my guests what they're, what they're working on, what they're sort of paying attention to now. So what's in that category for you? What's next? What's coming up?
2: I've been just kind of focusing on the client work for the summer. Uh, Recently I've been quarantined because my roommate had COVID. So so honestly, the last, yeah, the last 10 days I've been in this anxiety funk, but I created a course uh, called writing astrology. I'm really excited about that because it's just going to be like, I mean, we're going to try to write about ourselves using astrology and we're going to try to do it really extensively together. Uh, So that's something I'm really excited about starting in August. Um, But that's pretty much it. I'm trying to take it easy this summer and um, just try to stay healthy.
1: I think that sounds good. I hope your roommate is okay.
2: Yeah, they recovered.
1: Like we're all vaccinated. So
2: their symptoms are pretty mild. It's just like, yeah, yeah, it's just scary.
1: Well, Alice Sparkly Cat, thank you so much for joining me today
2: thanks for having me
1: you can learn more about alice at their website alice and that's cat with a k or you can buy a copy of post-colonial astrology wherever books are sold catch story behind the story the first friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m on ksqd 90.7 fm to share your thoughts on this or other shows drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org the story behind the story is produced for ksqd 90.7 fm by me clara shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Salmons. He also wrote our theme. Now for a time to read interview with William T. Volman from Rick Kleffel's podcast. It's one of nearly 300 lightning round interviews available as a podcast at narrativespecies.com.
3: William T. Volman's new book is Last Stories and Other Stories. Will you read to me from the book, William? Why not?
0: In my time, there lived a sad young man named Ricardo Ramirez, who once loved, most unfortunately, in the city of Guadalajara. He happened to be a doctoral candidate in the patriotic but unremunerative Department of Folklore. Wishing at all hazards to avoid glimpsing his former sweetheart's beautiful, treacherous face, he wrote to his favorite aunt, who lived in Veracruz, and asked whether he could board with her a while. Since his dissertation, in setting out to identify the autonomous and universal elements of Mexican legends, laid its snares conveniently wide, anywhere he cared to go would serve. All he required were stories, the stranger the better.
3: William, there are a variety of stories in here. They are all strange and they get better and better. I was hoping you'd say that. (laughs) I'd like you to talk about uh, creating this atlas of the afterlife
0: well, it seems to me that we might as well just play as much as we can when we're thinking about death. Maybe then if it can become at least temporarily a delicious experience instead of just a sad and gruesome experience, we're ahead of the game and it might even be a gruesomely delicious experience. That's okay too. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, there's certainly a lot of gru in this book. Uh, when you were creating these, like, really horrific scenes of cannibalism and vampires and flesh-eating ghouls,
0: did you have fun? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. And it was also just interesting to face it. You know, every time you see a dead animal at the side of the road and it gets run over repeatedly and then the flies land on it, you look at it and you think... This is really, really horrible. And also, this is a very, very quotidian thing. We're all gonna come to something like this. So let's just really look at it and think about it and see what we can say about it instead of turning away from it in disgust because it's gonna get us sooner or later.
3: Now, one of the things that's interesting about this book is all the cross-cultural references and the legends and myths you've assembled here Could you talk about how your research works? Do you pick up these things and let them percolate, or do you go out and search for them
0: in terms of the story? A little of both. When I go to uh, Doe Library over in Berkeley, I might browse through the stacks and look at all these interesting books on Bohemia, and some of them are in check, so I might be able to get a little bit out of this or that old map or illustration, here are some in German, I can kind of follow that. Here are some in English, and all levels of literary quality. And you flip through it and say, wow, here's a weird story. I want to write this down. Maybe I'll use it someday.
3: One of the things that interests me about this book is the way it relates to your nonfiction in that the only way we can Describe death is with the imagination. And you've written quite a bit of nonfiction, so I'd like you to talk about the parallels for you
0: exploring the world of death and exploring the real world. Well, for a writer, exploring anything outside of me is some kind of projection. And I have to say, all right, I know what it is like to see. So I'm going to imagine how someone else sees. It's got to be a little bit like the way that I see, even if it really isn't. I have to imagine that I am there. Otherwise, I have no idea what seeing is. And when you get to uh, something like a walking skeleton, what can that skeleton see? It doesn't even have any eyes. And uh, a skeleton probably couldn't walk by itself. A skeleton most likely is not consciousness. So it's all ridiculous anyway. But if I'm going to try that, I'll still think, well, all right, so the skeleton probably swivels its heavy head around, and um, it's probably seeing in a different way than we would see. And um, it might be what we would call malignant, but it probably doesn't consider itself malignant. And when it perceives, it might perceive without any emotion whatsoever, because it's dead, Or it might have this longing to return to dust or to uh, live again or somehow to interact with the living in some interesting way. And it's up to me to work it all out.
3: I've been speaking with William T. Volman. His new book is Last Stories and Other Stories. With time to read, I'm Rick Kleffel. Thanks for joining me, William. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.